Okay, thank you everybody for attending, tuning in over Zoom. And to those listening on the podcast, we are continuing our discussion of the Paitanim. Tonight, we continue with one of the most fascinating uh, Paitanim in Jewish history by the name of Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur. And before we do that, let's recap where it is we're holding in the history of the Paitanim. First, we covered the pre-classical and classical era of Paitanim, which namely includes some of the early uh, Hebrew liturgical poets, such as Rabiosi Berbiosi, and then Yanai, and Elazar HaKalir, Rabbi Shimon Gas, various uh, Paitanim that we've already covered who created poetry in what's called the classical era, the original uh, Hebrew liturgical poetry, the hymns, so to speak, the piyutim that were, that were created for the Shemona Esrei's of Eretz Yisrael. And then we began to move into the post-classical era, where not only did later authors in Eretz Yisrael, like Shmuel HaShlishi, begin to write poetry that was markedly different or markedly um, changed from the uh, earlier uh, piyutim, but Others in this post-classical era, in the, in the late uh, Oriental era, even innovated major innovations in the language. They strove to push the boundaries of piyut further and, and to advance the art of the piyut further than the earliest paitanim, the, early, the earliest historical paitanim. Namely, we, we, we began with Avsadia, who is one of the most important uh, one of the most important innovators in the realm of Piyut. However, very few of his poetic ouvre has survived. And then we moved on to Shmuel Hashlishi, who also, mostly, most of his Piyutim are, are extinct, but he was an enormously influential individual who uh, was a one of the respected scholars and sages in Eretz Yisrael, who later moved to Cairo. So we could see this move from uh, Eretz Yisrael a little bit further south into northern Africa. We see eventually that the population of Eretz Yisrael completely moved out and almost completely moved out due to the oppressions of the Arabs and the Bedouins. So what we had left was the Jewry of Eretz Yisrael began to completely move out of Eretz Yisrael. There was too much oppression. And the communities that were influenced by the schools of Eretz Yisrael began to uh, die out. So if you had communities in Italy, uh, you had communities in in um, in northern Africa, which and communities in Lebanon, which were which were under the purview and under the the influence of the schools of Eretz Yisrael in the 10th century, in the 9th century. But after the persecutions at the end of the 10th century, much of the Jewry in Eretz Yisrael began to move southward and began to migrate away from those lands. So in that era, a lot of the poetry moved with them, obviously. So tonight, by continuing with a with Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur, I am intentionally skipping um, over people who lived before him, important poets who lived before him, namely Menachem ibn Saruk and Dunash ibn Labrat. These two important poets were the fathers of 
sec not just secular, but but the classical Spanish poetry, the the famous Spanish poetry, which is known uh, with the names of Rabbi Huda HaLevi, the author of the Kuzari, and the author of one of the greatest poets of all time, uh, so Shlomo Ibn Gabirol, or Rabbi Moshe Ibn Ezra, Rabbi Shmuel HaNagid, all the famous classical Spanish poetry, they were the fathers of this type of poetry. And even though they lived a little bit before Yosef Ibn Abitur, I would prefer to discuss Ibn Abitur first because... When it comes to styles and influence, he did indeed precede them in the history of Piyut. And he follows, at least his style, follows more of the era of the classical Paitanim that lived hundreds of years before him in Eretz Yisrael. So for that reason, we're going to skip Menachem bin Saruk and Dunashi bin Labrat, although, the, although people who are a little familiar with Jewish history will know those names and, know, and understand why they are important. We're going to skip them a little bit. We're going to skip them for a little while until we finish understanding the evolution from the classical period to the late Oriental and the Spanish and the Italian German Franco Franco German periods. So this is why I've chosen this figure tonight. So now let's give a little bit of background as to the life and times of Rabbeinu Yosef Ibn Abitur. So as is known, the presence of Jews in Andalus, or what is known today as Spain, was not very large in the first millennium. Let's just say that in the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries, um, well, for the entire first millennium, and even into the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries, there were not so many Jews living in what we would call Spain today. Eventually, the centrality of Jews in the Levant and in the... Um, the area around modern-day Iraq, right, in Bavel, began, the, 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 the population of Jews began to migrate first to Egypt and then even more westward towards areas such as Spain. And at the time of Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur's life, Spain was no longer ruled by the Visigoths, who were the earlier Christian and horrible, horrible rulers of the of the Iberian Peninsula, but instead had been conquered by the Muslim forces, and was under under a in many different Muslim kingdoms over the over the generations, and the Muslims were far far better for the Jews than the Christian Visigoths were. The Visigoths made life actual living hell for any Jew who lived in their territory, so having the Muslims there created a much uh, basically what's the word, um, introduced or prepared uh, Spanish Jewry for a golden age of scholarship and productivity unlike they had never seen before. So one of the earlier figures of Spanish Jewry, which is known to anybody who's familiar with Jewish history, would be Chistai ibn Shaprut. Chistai ibn Shaprut was a famous uh, physician or vizier who served Abid al-Rahman, uh, I think, and Abid al-Hakim. Uh, one of the, I think it was Abid al-Rahman the first, I don't remember exactly who. And he served the, Abid al, I think it's Abid al-Hakim. He served the caliph, so to speak. He served as, a, as the vice president or the, 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 president of, the vice president of foreign affairs and, and, and like a head of state for the caliph of Cordoba. Cordoba at the time was humongous. It was a tremendous kingdom. And Chistai ibn Shaprut in that position was probably the most powerful Jew to have ever lived. He was an extremely, 
influential and powerful rabbi, scholar, Jew. His life story is fascinating as, as it is. It could, you could spend uh, quite a lot of time discussing Chistai ibn Shaprut. He's famously known for being very curious about the Kuzari kingdom and trying to reach out to the Khazar king in order to maintain a communication because he really wanted to, uh, to, to create that uh, connection or to, to, he wanted to believe that it was real. So he's also known for a lot of sponsorships. He sponsored a lot of voyages, a lot of scholarship, a lot of poets. However, the reason he's important for this story is because of a, another story which is also well known to those who follow Jewish history, and that is the story of the four captives. The story of the four captives is partly fictional because uh, the way it's recounted in the Sefer HaKabbalah of the Ra'avad is uh, basically full of contradictions and likely embellished and likely filled with misinformation. However, the story goes that there were four rabbis who got on a boat in Italy, leaving the town of Bari. Bari was a tremendous center of learning. And the story goes that it was Rishmariah, or Chushiel, or Moshe ben Chanoch, and his son Chanoch. And it could not have been, Rishmariah could not have been on that boat, uh, neither could Rabbi Chushiel. Regardless, it seems to have been established that Rabbi Moshe ben Chanoch and Rabbi Chanoch, his son, were on the boat, because they were later called Rabbi Moshe HaShavoy, right, the, the captive. And they left Bari for another, ta- for, another, for another area. It seems that they were going to collect for the, for the kala of the yeshiva, right? For the, they were going to, to collect for a yarche kala. And their boat was intercepted by a pirate known as Ibid, uh, Ibn Ruh- uh, Rumahis, or Ruhamis, I don't remember precisely. Uh, let me actually look at my paper, because I think I wrote down his name. Uh, where is it? What was his name? Yeah, uh, Rumahis. And the pirate, knowing that Jews would pay a high ransom for captives, for Jewish captives, decided to sell them at different ports, or so the legend goes. So when he reached Cordoba, he sold Ramosha ben Chanoch and his son Chanoch to the Jewish community there. And I'm leaving out some details of the story. Anybody who's interested, um, there's an excellent analysis of it by, um, who is it? Uh, this, there's an excellent analysis of the story of, of the four captives by uh, Gershon Cohen. Uh, it's available on JSTOR. Regardless, when he arrived in Cordoba, he was recognized by the community as an outstanding scholar, much further eclipsing any of the rabbis they had at the time, because again, Spain's population wasn't huge. And Chistai ibn Shaprut, upon hearing of the arrival of Rabbi Moshe Rabbi Chanoch, immediately uh, placed him as the chief rabbi of Cordoba. And people, upon hearing that this great scholar, Rabbi Moshe ben Chanoch from Bari, had uh, really from Apulia, he was from Italy, but from a place called Apulia, when they found out that he had settled in Cordoba, Jews from all over the Iberian Peninsula flocked to learn by Rabbi Moshe Rabbi Chanoch. And one of those students was Rabbi Yosef ben Yitzchak ibn Abitur uh, ibn Santanas. So we don't precisely know how to spell that last part, the ibn, it's either uh, Santash, Satanas, we're not quite sure because of the way Hebrew isn't vowelized, but 
we do know we we do know his name was Yosef Ben Yitzchak. The the Ibn Abitur seems to have been some sort of nickname that we can't really the etymology of which is unclear. But his family family name was something like Ibn Santanas or Ibn Santos or something to, something to that effect. So he was born in Merida, which is a a, uh, a small city uh, on the border of Portugal, and he moved to uh, whichever city or Moshe Baruch was living in. I suppose the capital of Cordoba to study by Rabbi Moshe Ben Rabbi Chanoch, and he was one of his most outstanding students. It was already recognized in his youth that he was going to be one of the greatest rabbis, and he must have been born somewhere around the year 940, uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Yosef. We know that there's a legend, at least, that the Caliph Al Hakim II asked Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur to write a commentary for him or to be his commentator, it's not quite clear, for the entire Talmud. So if, and this is a caliph who died in 961. And that would mean that by his 20s, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur was already a respected scholar and by a caliph who very much respected scholarship and even had a humongous library. So to, to reach that kind of stature by 20 years old is really, really remarkable. Now, the problem was that when, when Rabbi Moshe Rabbi Chanoch passed away, Chistai ibn Shaprut right away installed his son, Rabbi Chanoch, as the leader to succeed Rabbi Moshe in, in Cordoba. And while Chistai ibn Shaprut was alive, nobody dared to question that uh, institution or that, uh, there's a better word for it, I'm just, uh, that placement. Now, once Chistai passed away, and the Caliph also passed away, the new Caliph, I believe it was Ibn al-Rahman, um, was it, no, I'm sorry, this, this one, they, they have the same names over and over, I'm sorry, I keep confusing who they are, but the new Caliph, um, as well as, coupled with having a new Caliph and Chistai not being alive, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur made a decision that would basically alter his life forever, and that was to make a bid for the Rabbanut of Cordoba. He wanted, he believed that he was unfairly passed over to be the rabbi of Cordoba simply because Rabbi Chanoch, and we don't really know the precise details, but it seems that he believed Rabbi Chanoch was not a local. Rabbi Chanoch was from Bari, he was an Italian, and he wasn't intimately familiar with the Jews of Spain. Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur felt like he was born in Spain, he was familiar with the locals, he had lived there all his life, and he was far better suited to be the rabbi, uh, the chief rabbi of Cordoba. And so the, the Jewish population split into two camps, and one camp uh, supported Rabbi Chanoch ben Rabbi Moshe, and one camp supported Rabbi Yosef ibn Abitur. So they campaigned to the current caliph, who was al-Hakim II, and eventually, somehow, why, we don't know the details, Rabbi Chanoch ben Rabbi Moshe won, and he was installed as the chief rabbi of Cordoba. What, we are missing a lot of details of the story. All we know is that for some reason, upon his winning, Rabbi Chanoch placed a cherem, or a ban, like an excommunication, on Rabbi Yosef ibn Abitur. And this forced him, to some degree, to leave Cordoba. It is also rumored 
that the caliph told him, the caliph told Rabbi Yosef ben Rabbi Yitzchak, he told him that if, I don't know about you Jews, but among us Arabs, if uh, my Arab uh, associates or my social circle excommunicated me in the way that your social circle has excommunicated you, I would run for the hills. If I were you, I would leave Cordoba. And he took his advice and he bounced. And once he left Cordoba, this is likely in the year around 976, he first began to roam. He was, in, he was in some sort of denial. He wanted to challenge this excommunication of uh, Rabbi Hanoch ben Rabbi Moshe. So he traveled to Eretz Yisrael, he traveled, he got on a boat, he went to Egypt for a time, he was in, he was in all sorts of cities. He, he tried to get to Bavel and get an audience with Haigaon. He tried to get an audience with Shmuel HaKohen. The rumor has it that many of these rabbis denied him an interview simply because they were uh, respecting the cherem of Rabbi Hanoch ben Rabbi Moshe. Even a cherem, which some of them might have felt was unfair, they still believed in the law and they were not going to violate the cherem of Rabbi Hanoch. Now, after roaming for a while, he spent some time in Eretz Yisrael. And having learned under Rabbi Hanoch, under Rabbi Moshe ben Rabbi Hanoch, he was familiar with the Eretz Yisrael style, because he was an Italian rabbi, he was familiar with the Eretz Yisrael style of Limud HaTorah and of the pronunciations and all of their, uh, that school of Limud. And so he made a lot of friends in Eretz Yisrael and found it, he found it uh, appropriate to eventually move to Fustat, which today is, is Cairo. And in Cairo, he was welcomed warmly by the community because the community instantly loved him. He had a great reputation, obviously. He was known to be a tremendous rabbi. And also, uh, he was intimately familiar with Thurman Hagim, with their pronunciations. So it seems that he was warmly accepted by the Egyptian community. And he lived there for the rest, as far as we could tell, for most of the rest of his life. And that was where he continued his his productivity, but specifically the productivity that of the, the stuff that he produced that we have today from him is almost entirely poetic. We know that he was a great scholar. We have some teshuvot, some halachic responsa from him, but the majority of the material that we have from him is poetic in nature. So it seems to scholars of Piet that he originally um, was productive as a poet in Spain, but then finished the second half of his life. He probably died at around 80 or 90 years old. And he spent the second half of his life in Egypt where he continued to be very, very productive as a poet. We today only know of about 600 of his poems, and that's a tremendous, tremendous portfolio of poetry. It's clear that he was tremendously celebrated and tremendously respected as a poet, and that he was given this, this license to really write a lot of poetry for the tefillot of his time, for, for the, for the batei knisiot of his time. Now, as he had this change of fortune, I don't want anybody to, to, to understand, walk away think they're, thinking that Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur is the loser or the antagonist of this story, because a couple of decades later, there was a new nasi, or a new prince, a new leader of the Jews, in uh, Cordoba. And this person was a wealthy uh, textile merchant who had a thing where he really, really hated Rabbi Hanoch. He really hated the chief rabbi. 
and he basically ousted the chief rabbi from his position simply due to his power. And instead, he wanted Rabbi Yosef ibn Avitur to return to Cordoba to install him as the chief rabbi. And in the, his response, Rabbi Yosef ibn Avitur firmly rejects such a notion. And he states that Rabbi Hanoch, there is nobody in Cordoba um, there is nobody in Cordoba more, uh, more outstanding and more deserving of the position of Rosh Yeshiva than Rabbi Hanoch Ben Rabbi Moshe. So clearly, there, we're not speaking about a story of animosity or of hatred, and we're clearly missing a lot of details here. Either they reconcile, either there was never a personal fight between them, or there was some sort of personal fight and they reconciled. Whatever happened, we could see that we're not dealing with, with, an, anta with a, an antagonist here. We're dealing with a tremendous sage, a tremendous scholar, somebody who, whose influence upon the people of his generation was keenly felt and keenly respected. Now, to move on, he eventually, um, for some reason, died in Damascus uh, after the year 1024. He lived a very, very long life. So what we should review is that, yes, he was known as the Chacham of Talmud. Yes, he, uh, plenty of people came to, to him to learn Talmud. Yes, we have some responses from, from him in, uh, in Halakha. But the most, and some, actually some historians credit him for advancing Talmud in Spain more so than Rabbi Chanoch. Uh, or Rabbi Moshe, that he was really like a, a force for, for, yeshiva, for instituting yeshivot in Spain. Regardless, um, what we have from him is his poetic collection. And it's interesting that before the Geniza days, before the Cairo Geniza, his name was known. He's not one of those uh, poets who, like Shmuel Hashlishi, was completely forgotten to time and nobody has heard of him. He's not Oriani, for example. He's not a poet who was completely lost to time and then suddenly rediscovered in the Karagniza. Rabbi Yosef ibn Avitur had a few poems that were certainly ascribed to him. However, nobody knew who he was, and they only had about four or five that we, they knew for sure belonged to Rabbi Yosef ibn Avitur. However, with a lot of research at the end of the 19th century, more and more poems began to be identified as that of Rabbi Yosef, Yosef ibn Avitur, and upon the discovery of the Geniza, hundreds more of his poems were discovered. And scholars such as Chaim Sherman and Ezra Fleischer spent a lot of work, and Menachem Zulai, as well as others, uh, had a lot of work cut out for them to go through the many, many different fragments and the many different collections of Piyutim of Rabbi Yosef ibn Avitur. The first scientific slash uh, complete academic work on the works of Yosef ibn Avitur was published not in a book but in a dissertation. Ezra Fleischer, who was known as the king of, he was known as like the king of of, uh, of Jewish piot of uh, you know of uh, Hebrew medieval poetry, he was the key, like the king academic. He wrote his dissertation in the fifties. Uh, for a philosophy, like a philosophy PhD. I don't understand how it's a philosophy PhD. It should be a literature PhD, but whatever. He wrote his, uh, his PhD on Yosef ibn Avitor, and it is a whopping 600-page book 
which you could get on academia.edu if you're, if you're interested. And he wrote a serious, long uh, work on the life and on the poetic work of Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur, upon which most of subsequent research is, is based. There has been some progress since then, specifically Yosef Yahalom and others have, have done some excellent work in advancing the, the field as to understanding his poetry, understanding the effects of his poetry, and also understanding when he lived. So that's where we know most of what we know about Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur. One of the things we know, which is really important about him, is that unlike the later Spanish poets, he never wrote poetry, almost never wrote poetry in the Arabic meters. It's clear that he was aware of Arabic meters. Uh, he shows once or twice some familiarity with meters like Hazaj or styles like the Zajel, but he does not himself um, write in the Arabic meter. He's reticent to do so, and it's not clear why. Furthermore, he doesn't write secular poetry as far as we know. He doesn't write love poems, he doesn't write drinking poems, he doesn't write uh, nature poems. As far as we know, all of the poems that he wrote were kodesh or holy in nature. They were intended for liturgical use. Be that as it may, even though he didn't write in the fanciful, much newer uh, Spanish style, which was going to come out a few decades after uh, his death, he still had an enormous influence on those major poets, like Rabbi Moshe Ibn Ezra, like Gabirol, and like Yehuda Halevi. His influence was keenly, keenly felt by them. And if one is looking for the missing link, so to speak, between classical poetry and Spanish poetry, right, because they are noticeably different, both in, in style and in language, he is the missing link. He is where you find a real innovator, a real, uh, you know, a real artistic mind who can come and take the older structures, the older styles of the classical poetry and invent new styles and bring in new language and uh, bring in completely new, uh, what's the word, techniques to embellish the existing poetry. He's also credited with a lot of new innovations which became canon much later. So what's interesting is because in Spain proper he was overshadowed by let's say it would be Moshe Ben Ezra or uh, Shmuel Hanagid and Yehuda Halevi, in Spain proper, we don't find many of his piyutim preserved in the Mahsorim. However, if you go to the periphery of Spain, if you go to Aragon, Catalan, Avignon, uh, I said Catalan, uh, Fez, Sicily, in those Mahsorim you do find. You find also in Provence, you find in, in North Africa. All of those Mahsorim did contain piyutim of Avram Ibn Ezra, but in Spain proper, you find less of it simply because the later, more popular modern poetry, so to speak, took over and became a lot more uh, dominant in those areas. Even though he was enormously influential in that poetry itself, and the great Spanish poets learned a lot from him and his styles and his inventions, still, his name is not much very well known um, um, in the Spanish Masurim themselves. So I'm going to go through most, but not all, of his inventions and innovations. We will not have time, unfortunately, to go through, you know, again, I would exhaust the audience if it's not, if it's not, a, if it's not a story, you know, and we're just doing textual analysis, I feel like I will, I will exhaust the audience. But his poetry is really beautiful, is really worth hearing about, 
And so I'm going to go through some of his, in, his, uh, his innovations and hopefully uh, pay him the respect that he is due. <laughs> One of his most important innovations is inventing something called the ma'amad. The ma'amad means like the, uh, the structure or the set. And in, in Arabic poetry, there's something called a divan or a diwan. The diwan is like your portfolio where you publish your poetic portfolio. However, he had an idea to publish like a portfolio of Putin specifically for a holiday. So imagine somebody publishes a pamphlet and he says, okay, Yom Kippur is coming. I'm going to publish a pamphlet with a piyut for every prayer of, of Yom Kippur. So there's going to be a ma'ariv for Arvit. There's going to be a shivata for the Shmon of Arvit. There's going to be piyutim for shachrit, a kiddushta. There's going to be a yotzer for the shachrit. There's going to be a kiddushta for the musaf. There's going to be piyutim for, for mincha, for a shivata for mincha. Ne'ilah, there's going to be slichot for, for, for Yom Kippur. There's going to be an entire pamphlet, an entire uh, repertoire of, of poems built on the classical style for uh, Yom Kippur, just as an example. And he did this for many of the holidays. This invention, this idea of creating a ma'amad, like publishing a set of piyutim, a, a complete set for a coming holiday, was widely imitated by later uh, later Paitanim who followed this example. They were excited for an upcoming holiday because they were going to publish their, you know, uh, an, upco an upcoming holiday became exciting because they were going to publish their, uh, their new sets of, of Piyutim. And as I've said, uh, as I've explained many times before, a yotzer, like a Yotzer or a Kedushta is not just one poem. It is a set of like eight or nine poems which are, are woven into the, into the liturgy itself. So this is a very impressive thing to publish. And this was his idea. So now, many mamadot in general ex survive only in fragments in the Karaganiza, but from his, for some reason, larger fragments uh, survived, specifically of his Yom Kippur ma'amad. It's interesting that they even found some of Rabbi Yosef ibn Avitur's own handwriting in the, in the Karaganiza, his own signature and his own handwriting. So he was clearly uh, <laughs> prolific enough of a writer in Cairo that his documents were put in Geniza. Now, his Ma'amad for Yom Kippur was probably the most influential simply because in it he included a Seder Ha'avodah for Musaf. It's very famous. Anybody who's prayed, uh, prayed for Yom Kippur before will know that in the Musaf there is a Seder Ha'avodah, right? A, a, a poetic interlude where we describe the service as it was done in the, in the Beit HaMikdash. And he wrote a Seder Ha'avodah which was widely imitated by later poets. He basically took an earlier structure that was invented by Rav Sadia Gaon, and he improved it greatly. And the, and the poets after him uh, basically imitated his structure rather than Rav Sadia Gaon's. They took his language and they took his style. They took the, the way it was structured. Basically, every poem has its own structure, you know, like where you put how many strophes, how many stanzas, if there's an intro, if there's a refrain, if there's a chorus. His structure was the most popular and became, was, was clearly mimicked by the later poets of Spain. So that in, its, in itself was very influential. He wrote, uh, Ezra Fleischer believes that he wrote Yotzerot for the entire year. So a Yotzer, as we said, is a piyut set written in order to, uh, to be interwoven into the liturgy of the, the Yotzer Hamelrot of the Shachrit. So he wrote a Yotzer for every Shabbat of the year. 
at least according to Fleischer's research. And a lot of them are very beautiful, but, you know, didn't survive because the Yotzerot became much less popular in Sfarad. He also wrote Kiddush Ta'ot, uh, which are meant for the Shemona Esrei. His main uh, innovations in that regard, as far as I can remember, one second, was that he also added new styles that were slightly borrowed from contemporary uh, styles. There's something called the Zegel, or like the Estrabio in, in, in Spanish, where you put a, uh, how do you say it, where you take a, uh, a poem and you turn it into a kind of chorus, where you say two lines and then people repeat. You say two lines, people repeat. So he basically innovated, he took, he was first building on what, like, what Rasad Yagaon had did. He brought a newer Hebrew to these older styles, and then he put in these modern embellishments, which kind of added a liveliness and added a more, you know, uh, a more festive character to his piyutim with modern genres. He wasn't specifically borrowing from Arabic, uh, from Muslims, or sorry, I should say Arabic genres, but he was innovating with more uh, modern ideas. So, and, and in that sense, he's really pushing, he was really pushing the art form as itself, uh, just, just from an artistic perspective. Another in invention he did was introducing the Rishuyot, uh, specifically two Rishuyot, one for Baruch Shamar and one for Nishmat Kol Chai. He seems to have been one of the great, uh, one of the great inventors of creating what's called a Rishut for these two tefillot. A reshut is any, any poem which is meant to introduce or to, you know, uh, reshut means to permit, really, but to introduce the coming prayer. So what's funny about nishmat is that scholars of liturgy would know that nishmat itself is really an introduction to yishtabach. It's really a type of reshut for yishtabach. So creating a reshut for nishmat in and of itself is kind of interesting. But he invented this genre and it's a very interesting genre. It's like where you, you begin every stanza with the single word nishmat, and then you, you start the stanza. It's like, it's almost a little bit musical. You go nishmat, and then you do that, and then you repeat nishmat, and then you repeat uh, another stanza, another stanza. And this invention of this reshut was, again, widely imitated, and many subsequent uh, paitanim wrote a reshut for nishmat in his style. So I, I'll, I'll just read for you because I think I have it open in front of me. Uh, just an example, right? His, his, uh, his, nishma, his reshut begins, Nishmat isharim biyom menucha, yom shabbat kodesh yichadeshu lecha shivacha yisisai vigam yonka yodu tila nitzacha yismuchu yaltu lufnei alokim viyasisu bisimcha. And then another stanza, Nishmat viruach hamecha sridei sarei gam nefesh nognei, uh, nognei vichayot nivunai Nivonai gam yichidat roznai v'chulam nivonai lev lechadesh lecha renanai uvnehem yiru v'samechu yagel libam ba amonai right so ba Hashem a very beautiful beautiful style I wish we could go more into the analysis of of his language and of of, of all that but I I don't want to stretch it too much okay a little bit further one of the things that pertain to our day. Um, one of the legacies Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur has until this day is not very widely known. And that is the Hosha'anot. When the Sfaradim read their Hosha'anot on Sukkot, Hosha'anot Liyom Rishon, Liyom Sheni, Liyom Shlishi, even the Hosha'anot Liyom Shoshanar Abba, most of the Sfaradim Achsorim retain the Pew team of Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur. 
Now, if you open up a Sephardi Sidur today and you look at these so-called piyutim in the Machsorim, you won't know that, they're, that they are piyutim because the way the, many of the Machsorim uh, structure them is they put them into one long paragraph. Recently, I think the Magen Abraham Sidur improved this uh, for, for the Syrians and they put them actually into the proper uh, poetics into the poetic structure, so they put them with the proper stanzas, the proper strophes, the proper the proper uh, sticks. However, in many Sfaradi Sidurim, you'll just see it as one big paragraph glob. Now, many of those Anakelna and many of those uh, uh, of those Hoshanot that we read were actually written by Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur. Not all of them, but many of them, and that's one of those few legacies which, although it was forgotten for a long time, is the legacy of. Rabbi Yosef Ibn Avitor. So he was a prolific writer of Hoshanot, which still survive to this day. Now, that style, if anyone's interested, please see Fleischer's dissertation on this, but he differed from Rafsadia Gaon in this thing. He, he really brought a tremendously new Spanish influence. It departed from the Eastern influence. It was, it was, it was much more Western. It was much more beautiful. The Hoshanot really changed the game for Hoshanot forever. Nobody was writing Hoshanot in the way of Rafsadia Gaon anymore. His Hoshanot really changed the game for Hoshanot and inspired a whole new wave and a new type of Hoshana. Okay, the next form of piyut that he wrote is really a historically interesting one. I'm going to give two of them that are historically interesting, and then I think we'll close for the night. The first one is the Kina. He wrote a Kina called Bechuachai, or Cry My Brothers, because as I mentioned last week, the, or even earlier in the Shi'ur, the situation for Jews in, Israel, in Eretz Israel was getting very rough by the end of the 10th century and by the beginning of the 11th century. So the Jews in Fustat and Cairo were very close, you know, uh, spiritually and, and socially. They were very close. They had a lot of connections with the Jews in Eretz Israel, and they supported the yeshiva there. So when the Bedouins, led by Al-Jara, um, they pillaged and sacked Ramla. It was a tragedy felt intimately by the community of Eretz Yisrael. And as I mentioned last week, Shmuel Hashlishi wrote a kina for that event. Now, 12 years later, the Bedouins uh, pushed for, further north and they pushed the Christians out and they managed to, the Byzantines out, they managed to take over Yushalayim upon uh, sacking Yushalayim, they were complete and total animals. They robbed the, the population. They killed people mercilessly. They raped the women. They raped the children. They, they, they basically destroyed the civilian population and specifically had extra animosity and cruelty towards the Jewish people in Yushalayim. Therefore, when this news came to, to Cairo, it... Uh, was a tremendous tragedy for the community. And Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur wrote a kina to lament this tragedy in the year 1024. Now, dating this to the year 1024, as it was properly done um, by, I think it was Yahalom, Yosef Yahalom, tells us that he really did live to ripe old age. Meaning if he was born around the year 940 and he died after 1024, that tells us that he lived at least 84 years. So he really did live a very, very long life. Incidentally, this kina is very interesting because he writes it in a makam. He never wrote, uh, most of his poetry is not written in Arabic meter. 
But this poem he writes with an Arabic meter, either because it was the new, fresh thing to do in that decade, or because once in a big blue moon he would write an Arabic meter, and we just don't have enough of that uh, poetic um, produ uh, production in the Geniza to really testify. So he writes it in almost like a quasi-chizaj, uh, which is uh, an Arabic meter, which is well known to anybody who, who knows a little bit about piyut. For example, Adon Olam is written in chizaj. Uh, in Hebrew, it's called Mishkal Hamarnin. And uh, that is one interesting kina that he wrote. That's just about his life. The next interesting thing is that was found, that was discovered recently, was a, a researcher by the name of Omri uh, Levant, or Levnat, I'm not sure his name, decided to look outside of the Geniza for evidence of Rabbi, of Rabbi Yosef Ibn Avitor's productivity. And he found a mahzor from Algeria in which there were many putim that he was able to ascribe. Uh, when I say a mahzor, an early mahzor in manuscript form from, 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 Constantine, from Constant, Constantine, that he was able to ascribe many of these putim to Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur. And what was fascinating was that almost any Sephardi you speak to today will be familiar with the song, Kel Nora Alila Hamtzilanu Mechila Bishatani Ila. This is a piyut that the Sephardim say at the time of Ni'ila, right? Kel Nora Alila. So this is written by Rabbi Moshe Ibn Ezra. And it's a very, very powerful piyut. However, he found in the Algerian manuscript that Rabbi Moshe Ibn Ezra was not the, the, the first person to write a piyut of this kind. Rabbi Yosef ibn Abitur wrote a Kelnora Alila before him. It seems that Rabbi Moshe ibn Ezra was imitating the Kelnora Alila, Hamtilanu Mechila, of Rabbi Yosef ibn Abitur. So this famous piyut was overshadowed, sorry, this famous piyut is an overshadowing of the prior uh, Kelnora Alila, which was indeed invented by Rabbi Yosef ibn Abitur. Lastly, I will just, uh, just for the sake of at least seeing one of his poems, Besides the Nishmat, I will just speak to something that I believe it was uh, Yosef Yahalom pointed out. And that is one of his poems that he wrote as the Yot for a Yotzer of Shabbat. And this was a Yotzer that he wrote for the parasha. It's written for the Ahava, right? The Ahav this in the Yotzer, in the Yotzrot, there's a piyut called the Ahava. It's supposed to go in Ahavat Olam, right? But what he did was in this poem that he inserted into Avat Olam, he didn't speak, this, this was on the parasha where Yosef, uh, Yosef HaTzadik gets uh, banished. Uh, what parasha is that? I'm trying to think, Miketz. Um, he gets banished from, uh, he gets sold by his brothers as slaves. So instead of speaking about the love of Hashem towards the Jewish people, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur speaks about the love of the Jewish people towards Hashem. And Yosef Yalom points out the irony that he, he thinks that it seems that Yosef Ibn Abitur feels like he is Yosef, that he, is, he was banished from Spain to Egypt, and yet he still remained in his righteousness. So I'll just read to you some of this, this, po this poem. This day, meaning on this Shabbat, I will mention the righteousness of the righteous one and his love towards Hashem, his maker. Since he suffered the rule of his laws as far as they bound his feet with fetters. 
So I will ask for his help concerning his love and his fear as the commandment of his word. To love Hashem your God uh, and to listen in his, to obey his voice. So he's saying, today we are mentioning Yosef HaTzadik, and uh, who was righteous even as they bound up his feet in fetters and he was banished and for that and i will ask for hashem's help to love hashem and to fear hashem in 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 obeying his commandments a very very beautiful piyut which recalls to an extent his own personal feelings of having been banished from the place where he grew up and having spent the rest of his life in a foreign land so with that we will conclude our very brief, uh, <laughs> a very brief look at Rabbi Yosef ibn Abitur. I think we've already gone 45 minutes, and that is again a very brief look at this tremendously influential poet's life. There are many putim that he wrote throughout the year for Yom Kippur, for Sukkot, for Rosh Hashanah, for uh, for Tisha B'Av. Many different putim that are ascribed to him. And now, if you see in your machzor, Le Rabbi Yosef ibn Abitur. You will know a little bit about the man who you'll know a little bit about the man who is responsible for this for that the beautiful poetry you will read. So Bezrat Hashem next week we will continue with uh, one, another classical poet. I have yet to decide who, or post-classical poet. And I hope everyone's found this interesting, and hopefully we'll see everybody next week.